0: Hello and welcome to the Korean Beauty Show podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Lee, K-beauty expert, long-term resident of Seoul, South Korea, the founder of Style Story, where you can shop, learn and explore the world of Korean skincare, and of course, your host and guide to the world of Korean beauty. So welcome back to uh, another episode of the show. I hope that everyone had a lovely weekend. Uh, And indeed, it was my weekend that kind of gave me the idea for this week's episode. So let me explain a little bit. Because if you've seen the headline or the title to this episode about luxury Korean beauty products, you're probably thinking, what is she on about in this economy? Nobody can afford this stuff. And look, it's true. A lot of people are tightening our belts. uh, And, you know, when it comes to things like luxury goods, how many people out there probably buy this stuff on anything like a regular basis anyway? Not that many of us. But I still thought that it was an interesting discussion because, because it is a very lively sector of the market. And there's a lot going on in there that then actually does filter down into some of the more affordable things and other sectors of the market, particularly when it comes to things like research and development. Uh, And it's a topic that I haven't really covered in a whole lot of detail before, just because the vast majority of us, myself included, are not really luxury customers when it comes to beauty. So, Why I thought that now would be a good time to talk about it is because over the weekend, I had a chance to visit the Amore Pacific headquarters in Seoul, Amore Pacific being one of the largest beauty conglomerates in the world and indeed uh, a Korean beauty company that has so many different brands under its umbrella, that you would definitely recognize everything from Laneige to Iope, uh, uh Etude, literally just more brands. Like, we'd be here for a while just listing out all the brands that they own. But one of the things that they really um, – have a lot of in their vertical, I guess you could say, is luxury brands. And having a look around the building and their premises, and, you know, it's obviously very high-end, it's in a very up-and-coming area, right in the center of Seoul. Uh, And that area, interestingly enough, uh, has really changed Over the last few years. And I was having this conversation uh, with someone yesterday and sort of saying, do you think that this area has changed because the solar suit headquarters, uh, rather Amore Pacific headquarters, uh, the Amore Pacific headquarters has gone into the building, you know? And she didn't think that it really had that much of an impact. And I was sort of saying, well, look, it's interesting that you get this influx of young professional women with a little bit more money to spend because, of course, you know, uh, Amore being a takey like a large size company they tend to pay their staff a lot more as well and I was like I just find it interesting that this area is so up and coming and you know it kind of coincides roughly in time with this this giant building going in. So look I mean that's pure speculation and not really the point of today's episode but it did just get me thinking a little more about this as a topic uh, and about luxury as a topic as well. Uh, so that is what I kind of wanted to have a little bit of a chat to you guys about. Now, when it comes to what actually makes a brand luxury, this is a really interesting topic and I actually did uh, a course a few years ago about luxury branding and marketing Uh, And it was fascinating. There was an expert, I can't remember who he was, I apologize, but he was someone who his whole career was uh, based in the luxury end of the market and in particular uh, marketing for these luxury brands. And interestingly enough, based on what I learned through that course, a lot of brands that we think of uh, as luxurious or luxury are technically not in that category Uh, And that's because what really defines a brand as luxury is that it is scarce and that not everyone can get their hands on it. Uh, But I think when it comes to the beauty industry generally, it's a safe bet to say that most beauty brands are in the middle. They're not super cheap and they're not ultra luxe and impossible to buy. They're just sort of middle of the road. Obviously, we have the really cheap end of the market. I'm thinking brands like The Ordinary and The Inkey List, uh, which, you know, obviously are very, very cheap. Uh, Similar ones, I guess, in the Korean beauty market would be one thing I think it has a very similar concept to them, like the single ingredient focus, very, very cheap. Uh, and often with those kind of brands, you get what you pay for. You know, uh, you can definitely pick up some great products, but they're not sort of super high end or super luxurious. Then I think there is uh, a lot of brands that some people would classify as luxury but that I think properly belong in the prestige end of the market and I think these are the kind of ones that are stocked in places like Sephora. Like this is not a firm categorization because I think it's really hard to categorize these things. A lot of people for example put Laneige into the, uh, the luxury category. I don't know if I would put Laneige in the same category as, for example, Solvassu, both of which are owned by Amore Pacific. I think I would classify Laneige as more prestige. Uh, So, you know, you can see how slippery a lot of this is uh, when it comes to sort of categorizing different various beauty brands. Uh, But it is one of the few areas in the world, beauty that is, where In terms of like consumer goods there is a lot less choice for high-end consumers in the beauty section compared to lots of other you know areas of the market like think about clothing shoes all of them there there's so many more luxury options really expensive stuff you know furniture cars things like that if you were a luxury consumer that has money to burn When it comes to the things that you can really sort of waste money on in beauty, they are kind of limited. Like, there are obviously uh, exclusive products and things like that, limited edition versions of products that go for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. But the bread and butter sort of brands that are there all the time, they're kind of few and far between. Uh, and I, as I was doing my research for today's episode, I came across a piece by the B- Business of Fashion, uh, and they were sort of talking about this, the state of fashion and beauty when it comes to ultra-luxury, and they were saying that they estimate that true luxury and ultra-luxury beauty combined represent approximately $20 billion worth on the market today – but they think there's a potential compound annual growth rate of between 15% to 20%, which would equate to an additional 15 to 20 billion in sales by 2027. So a lot of room for growth. And I think one of the reasons that they've said that is because there just isn't that much at the ultra luxury or even the really true luxury end of the market. Now, again like trying to define what luxury actually is this is going to be a little bit personal to everybody because you know it's the same for anything you know one man's you know trash is another man's treasure but also when it comes to luxury things if you're really like splurging spending more than you can afford on something to you that probably is a luxury item even if it wouldn't be to other people I think price, obviously, is very important, as is packaging. Uh, And I think another thing that kind of sets the luxury brands apart is the experience of buying it in-store and the whole process of what happens in luxury stores. Here in Korea, these days, it's hard to even get into a lot of the luxury stores. Uh, And the reason's kind of complicated, but it all sort of had its origins in the COVID pandemic. So what they did here was we had a thing where you couldn't have more than a certain amount of people in a store at a particular time. That was just part of the COVID restrictions. I cannot remember now off the top of my head how many it was, but it was a small amount of people in the store. Anyway, so what ended up happening was you would have to line up outside any store, not just luxury, to get in if there were already that amount of people in the store, and I know plenty of other places did this as well, like America, parts of America had this uh, as well, that, you know, you had to sort of wait outside, maybe book in advance to get in to the Apple store or something like that. But the luxury beauty brands (laughs) got a hold of this in Korea and they just ran with it. And what ended up happening was, even after the COVID restrictions had been done away with, they kept this system of having like a waiting time, And I've had this conversation with lots of different people, and my theory is that they've done it to try and increase this um, feeling of scarcity. Like, oh my gosh, like it's really exclusive to even be let into the store. Like, you know, they don't just let in the great unwashed; only a few people can be in there at the at the same time. And it kind of enhances this feeling of like a truly luxurious VIP moment for you when you're in the store. Now, for a lot of people, maybe they really love that, but for me, it annoys me to no end because. Nine and a half times out of ten, when I walk into anything like that, I'm literally just browsing. I'm not there to purchase something. I'm just having a look, just you know, sticky beaking, window shopping, whatever you want to call it. And there is no way that I'm lining up or waiting around outside a store for however long it takes for my number to come up. And oftentimes it will be a long time. Like we're talking, over 30 minutes so that you kind of have to be just milling around waiting for your number to come up. And that just takes all the fun out of window shopping for me if I have to sort of wait around. And it's not just one store, it's every store, uh, you know, to, like Chanel or something like that to get in there. You're, you're putting your phone number down and then waiting to be pinged and go back to the store. Uh, but this is a whole part, I think, for a lot of people of what it means to be buying something luxury. When it comes specifically to beauty, uh, what you'll notice is that a cornerstone of these luxury beauty brands tends to be a reliance on things like scientific innovation, maybe rare ingredients, patents, things like that, like ingredients that only they have access to. Obviously, it goes without saying that exceptional product quality is also a part of it. So it's kind of like you can see the all over experience. They're expensive. Uh, Maybe it's a bit trickier to buy it in store compared to other stores. Uh, They've got, you know, these rare ingredients of really, really high quality. The other big factor that you'll see a lot of these uh, brands really leaning into is a compelling story, like a founding story. So when it comes to Amore Pacific, you will often hear that they trot out the story of the founder's mother. So the founder's mother, all the way back in 1932, started making and selling cosmetics. And what she did was sold camellia oil. And that has a really intricate process to make it. And it's bottled sort of one bottle at a time. So that's the whole idea is like, you know, bottled with devotion and sincerity uh and that's kind of how you know the, the, their brand was founded you'll hear other ones that it's like oh we made some you know historic scientific discovery um you know a lot of the the big beauty brands i'm thinking loreal sk2 they all have these kind of like a oh, scientific discovery as part of the the brand story Uh, And I think one of the reasons that we will often see that with these brands is because trust and then also the quality factor that is necessary – to succeed in this area of the market, this section of the market, and have people spending all this money is going to be based on, you know, the heritage of the brand itself. Uh, you know, like not anyone can start one of these brands. Obviously that's not true. And there are examples of brands that have um, launched themselves in recent history as luxury. Uh, but I think the idea of trust and quality is really, really important. And I was speaking with the PR manager Um, of one of the luxury Korean brands recently and she was telling me she 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 manages a lot of different brands she doesn't work with just this one brand but what she was saying was they were doing a big push into the US and I won't name the brand just because I don't want to I don't want to get her in trouble but they were doing a big push into the US and their whole brand story is built around Uh, a particular Korean ingredient, let's just say. If you're familiar with K-beauty and luxury K-beauty, you can probably guess what ingredient it is. But Anyway, that's not the point of this story. So, and what she was saying is that they completely failed. Like their expansion into the US was just like an utter failure. And I think that there are, you know, there are obviously lots of different reasons why marketing fails. Uh, They ended up doing a lot better in Southeast Asia uh, and, you know, got picked up a lot. um, A lot of organic sort of media for the company that meant that they ended up doing quite well over there. And I think that uh, part of it is that trust and quality factor, like launching into a new market where nobody knows your name and they don't know the whole backstory of you and this miraculous ingredient. It's just that much harder. I think that a lot of the luxury korean beauty brands have done better historically in asia and part of that is the shared cultural heritage so a lot of as we get into i'll I'll explain a little bit more about which of the brands are luxury in korea and whatnot later in the episode but what you'll notice is that a lot of them really lean into traditional oriental medicine ingredients hanbang as they're called here in korea And so that's just a much easier sell in countries that have this similar cultural heritage, particularly if they know about you know, the ingredients that are used, they will have a better appreciation of the pricing point for a lot of these kind of things. They will know that, oh, um, you know, red ginseng, for example, is a very expensive ingredient. So, there's that kind of instant familiarity that doesn't need as much explanation as other things. Uh, And, you know, particularly when it comes to Hanbang, from a Western point of view, a lot of the ingredients and the scents and things like that, as in the fragrance of the products, can be, quite different to what they're used to. uh, And all of those things kind of just make it a little bit of a harder sell. So what I thought I would do is go through luxury in Korea because Korea is quickly becoming one of the fastest consumers of luxury in the world, if not the fastest. Koreans just go absolutely mad for luxury products. Uh, And one of the reasons that a lot of people give for why that is the case is because being a monoculture, uh, where you know everyone kind of looks similar to one another they have the shared race and the cultural history and all of these things unlike for example multicultural places like America or Australia where everyone comes from all different countries like we can already distinguish ourselves pretty well in korea people can distinguish themselves based on other things like their education their status um luxury goods you know where they live all of these kind of things then become something that you hold up to differentiate yourself from everybody else uh so interestingly enough in korea itself luxury in the beauty industry often does equate to foreign cosmetics brands like SK2, Estee Lauder, Chanel, like these are the kind of brands that you will see very well represented in the local department stores. Of course, Korea does have a lot of its own luxury brands as well. And two of the ones, the most representative ones that I think it makes the most sense to discuss today are Seoul and The History of Who. Uh, They are also tend to be the more accessible ones for overseas consumers as well. We stock a range of their products on styles story.com.au uh if you're interested in trying them but these in general are usually held up as the Korean you know luxury brands The other thing that you will notice if you are familiar with this end of the market uh, is that a lot of the products tend to be for mature skin. Those kind of anti-aging formulas are heavily representative or heavily represented rather. I think that this is probably due to a combination of factors. Number one, of course, is the price. Like if you're going to be charging people more, Who are you more likely to sell it to, a 60 year old woman or a 16 year old? Like, obviously, people who are older tend to have a little bit more disposable income than, say, a student or something like that. Gross overgeneralization, but in general, that's a safer bet for a company looking to make money. The other thing is the use of hanbang ingredients, which is something that I already touched on. And these generally tend to be very, very appealing to people who are a little bit older because that is very familiar to them. Uh, you know, they probably do attend their local honey one, their local Korean um, medical clinic to get treatments and things like that already. They know the scents, the smells, they know the value of the ingredients, how they are cultivated or you know um, extracted, all of those kind of things. So it just makes a little bit more, more sense. And the packaging tends to be very ornate, quite over the top, heavy heavy use of things like gold traditionally, even if it's not real gold, like, you know, to hark back to, uh, you know, something really fancy, uh, something. Luxurious, I guess. Like gold is often associated with luxury. Some people think of it as tacky, but for a lot of people, it is, you know, the symbol of something that costs a lot of money. Uh, And gold, of course, is heavily represented in Asian jewelry as well, particularly wedding jewelry. If you are, um, you know, marrying into um, the Chinese um, cultural tradition, then the jewelry is all very ornate, over the top, gold with a lot. Of little layers, uh, pigs are th- thought to um, bring fertility. Uh, so often, it'll have little layers of pigs, all made out of gold. So that then makes sense to incorporate into your luxury packaging because people from a similar cultural heritage are already sort of thinking along those lines. Now, this is changing, and I'm going to go into that, which I think I've already talked about on the show recently, semi-recently. But let's let's cover it again. Why not? So, Solversu. Is uh, definitely one of these brands that is I would say a classic uh, luxurious Korean beauty brand a lot of people will be familiar with it now they have recently updated their packaging uh, and I did see that yesterday at Amore Pacific's headquarters uh, you know got to check it all of it out very close up uh, and the big thing that they've done, apart from moving away from sort of, you know, the golds and the really sort of mature looking over the top packaging is they have gotten rid of the Chinese characters uh, on their packaging and they've just gone for a really sleek uh, new packaging. Now, last time I mentioned. Uh, the the Chinese characters having been done away with someone sort of came at me and was like oh so racist you know imagine calling them Chinese characters but that's actually what they are called in both Chinese and Korean so in Chinese they're called Hanzi, which literally means Chinese character and then in Korean we call them Hanja which is the exact same thing so that is actually how um, Korean and Chinese people refer to them themselves that is not me coming up with that just I, I didn't think I would need to clarify that but there you go yes that is actually what they're called uh, because of course it's not writing they are actually characters they stand for something. traditional Chinese characters if you've ever you know learnt calligraphy or whatnot they were actually pictographs and now they've been simplified and they look different but they came from pictures of things and then were simplified down And there are a couple of different writing styles. Anyway, not the point of the conversation, but someone came at me last time, so I thought I'd just clear that up in case anyone else was like, oh, my God, I can't – you shouldn't call them that. That's what they're called. Uh, So, they they, they did away with them. Why did they do away with them? Uh, It's actually to do with the fact that they are trying to appeal to a more global audience, Obviously, with all the tension and what's going on in China these days, with COVID uh, and you know, you know, the market and whatnot, because they are trying to appeal to a different audience, they thought that a packaging update to a more global uh, look would be more beneficial for them as a company. That is the, the the call they've made based on seeing the sales keeping on going down in China, realizing that they need to diversify, they decided to refresh and update all of their packaging. Now, one of the most famous products, I think, from Solosu is their First Care Activating Serum. So this is one of those ones that is designed to um, be applied to the skin. It's like a serum. It has that thicker sort of texture. And it does have this very representative color, this deep, rich, sort of almost auburn color, I think you would say. And that is because they are incorporating these traditional Asian medicine herbs, uh, and then with, you know, advanced modern science is what they call it. Uh, but basically charm balancing con- complex is their trademarked ingredient. They call it a potent cocktail of five Korean herbs, uh, And, you know, they've included a lot of things that you don't typically see in ingredients list, like walnut seed uh, extract. They've got something called Ophiopogon japonicus root extract. So really leaning into this sort of end of the market. That is a very, very famous product. And then they have their their essential firming line, uh, which has... You know, a moisturizer in it. Again, this one is specifically for mature skin. So it's basically designed to strengthen your skin and give you an overall fresher, younger looking appearance. This also has a trademarked ingredient, which is their on firming complex. So you'll see that they're using a lot of trademarked ingredients. A lot of it is very Hanbang in nature. And you know, made for mature skin types that I guess they figure can afford the the pricier. The pricier price tags, which it is a lot pricier when you have a look at, you know, their other brands like Innisfree or Etude. These cost, you know, several times more than all of that. So that's why you'll see a lot of these are specifically for more mature skin. Now, the second brand that I think is really representative of Korean luxury is the history of Who, and this one has a very interesting history in and of itself because it was actually commissioned by Korea's government back 2003, they wanted to create a national luxury skincare brand to embody Korean traditions. And LG Household and Healthcare, another big conglomerate here, developed and launched this brand, The History of Who. So, what they do is they call it a reinterpretation of royal court secrets. So, again, you can see this harking back to some mythical or, you know, special knowledge that only they have. And what they actually did is they actually analysed tens of thousands of royal medical books and came up with, like, a prescription for the royal family uh, that, you know, that was given to the royal family that they could incorporate into these products. They then also used, use the royal cultural heritage from the courts into the packaging designs as well so that's why they're quite ornate and over the top they're beautiful beautiful products uh, and you know obviously spending that much time and effort developing the formulas and the packaging means that the price is going to be quite high and indeed it is but you will see this – so their, their theme, this modern reinterpretation of royal court secrets being replicated at the lower end of the market. And this is actually uh, a theme that Beauty of Joson, Choson Mino actually plays at in their end of the market. But there are some big differences between what's going on at the luxury end of the market and what's going on at the lower end of the market, uh, not only in packaging but also in ingredients. So this brand was actually the first premium cosmetics brand in Korea to exceed 2 trillion won in sales. So, they managed that back in 2018. So, big, big business for them as well. And one of the ingredients that they really love working with is red ginseng. Now, a lot of brands claim to use red ginseng, but one of the things that really does distinguish luxury k-beauty and just ordinary k-beauty is the type of ginseng that they're using and that is because not all ginseng is alike if you are using just regular old cultivated ginseng that is not the same as the wild red ginseng and that is the one that has been far more studied and actually has proven anti-aging benefits uh, so it has been very well studied here in korea and it can actually protect the skin from uvb induced damage it can minimize the appearance of fine lines and increase skin hydration as well. Uh, The component in it is different from just the ordinary cultivated ginseng. So that is why there is such a huge difference in price. Uh, so some of the products that are really representative of the history of who one of them is their uh, red ginseng oil so it's called the the red wild ginseng facial oil Uh, and you know there is no ingredient that is more prized in korean beauty than this Uh, and then obviously this being a facial oil it is If you are a truly luxury lover um, or a real um, aficionado of Korean skincare products, I think you will like this one. We have it on the Style Story website. They also include almond oil and other herbal ingredients as well. But this is going to be one for people with mature skin or dry skin because it is that end of the market. Um, We've also got their uh, Jin yul Intensive Revitalizing Eye Cream as well on Style Story. uh, And that is a similar thing it is designed to diminish the appearance of fine lines gently moisturize your eyes all of those things that you expect from you know a really beautiful luxury eye cream and the packaging is divine i'll put links to all of these down in the show notes because they they deserve to be seen like they are works of art and i think that that's reflected in the price point as well however As I was researching for this episode, I came across some commentary in uh, one of the local um, economic review um, newspapers and that is that there is talk among the Who headquarters from LG Household and Healthcare that they may be going to change the packaging and the aroma to suit the tastes of North American customers. So that was something that has been mentioned. They are looking to enter the North American market. Obviously, all of the brands are in the similar position when it comes to China and needing to diversify away from China. So it may be that this is all toned down in the future. I don't know what they have in store for it but this really kind of ornate over the top court style packaging may be on its way out i'm not sure um you you know certainly I, i noticed that even at the lower end of the market beauty of joseon they used to do their um products with hanji traditional korean style paper and they've done away with that as they've gotten bigger and expanded into north america that could just be you know to keep the pricing down i'm not sure uh, but there you go. So I just thought I would have a chat at sort of what is going on and what is happening in the luxury end of the Korean market. I know that not everyone will probably uh, want to or even be able to afford to try um, these products. And, you know, that's okay. Like, they don't have to be for everyone. There is so much variety in Korean beauty. I think that's one of the main selling points of it is that there are so much quality available at a lot of different levels. But I do get questions from time to time, people sort of asking me about it. I think they are the most representative and probably the easiest brands to get your hands on because they were launched by bigger brands that have marketing budgets and international strategies and all of those kind of things. But there are differences between ordinary cosmetics and the really luxury ones, (laughs) if not only the pricing of them. Uh, But I just thought that it might be an interesting sort of discussion point. We haven't talked about it before, so why not? Uh, I hope that you did enjoy today's episode. Maybe you learned something new as well. And if you did, I would absolutely love it. If you would leave your rating and review for the show, maybe share it with a friend, Uh, that would be amazing. And, uh, yeah, that's all I had for you for this week. I will, of course, be back in your ears for another news update next week with our news segment. The only other thing that I will flag for our listeners is that uh, Jellico's Gelato Glaze Lip Mask has officially launched at Style Story. It launched on Jellico last month, Jellico Global, but it's now available in Australia definitely not a luxury beauty product. Uh, If you are looking for something a little bit more within budget, I think you will find that this one fits in uh, much more nicely than the couple of hundred dollar ones. Um, But yes, I will finish up there for this week. I will be back in your ears next week. And until then, I will see you on Style Story.